There is no roadmap for what is happening in the world today, but the more informed you are, the better your chances are for successfully navigating these uncertain times. This is why the registry continues to bring its real estate news coverage to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We can only do this because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at the registrysf.com in San Francisco and at the registryps.com in Seattle. Ken Lowney founded Lowney Architecture in the Bay Area in 2003 and is the president of the firm. Ken's approach to architecture is rooted in his belief that architecture is more than simply buildings, and if thoughtfully and responsibly done, it can positively contribute to society and advance a community. We talked with Ken today about the process of forming his own business, the challenges with doing innovative work, and the opportunities large disruptions like COVID-19 may bring to the industry in the future. People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything with an easy reach, whether it's world-class restaurants, theater, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among other industry leaders and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result? An unbeatable combination that leads to success. And that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at www.hacienda.org. Ken, good morning. How are you? Hey, Vlad. Good morning. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing well. Doing well. Thank you. Where does this podcast find you today? Where Where are you? I am in Rockridge, Oakland, California, in my office, in my newly renovated house. I've been living here since uh, 1999 and just finished a multi-year renovation. My renovation actually finished three days before quarantine. Okay. So it's pretty sweet. I got a nice office. I have a nice backyard and uh, I feel lucky. So I think the obvious question is why go back to the office then, Ken? Will you ever, will you ever do that? <laughs> you know, I have to say, you know, on St. Patrick's Day of 2020, the prospect of quarantine and having no, none of my employees, I've got 50 employees in, in Oakland, in Honolulu, and having them, no one show up for work scared the hell out of me. And I, I, I really thought it would be the demise of my firm. And I, we weren't prepared for it. Yeah. Um, cause our, our, you know, we're not, our, we're not quite yet ready to go out work from the cloud. So we still have a server in our office. We, people would have to, you know, VPN in to a computer, which then is linked to a server and you, it just, the prospects scared the hell out of me. So, but we just did it and we, we did it and it was almost seamless that, you know, people got their computers, brought them home, got set up at, at at their at their homes, everyone learned how to use VPNs, which is a you know way of linking into sure. the, the office. And uh, we, the, our first month, we we didn't really lose any we didn't lose any clients. Number one, we didn't 
our profitability, our utilization rate for our employees uh, stayed solid. And then months thereafter, we actually became more profitable and hired more people. We've hired 10 people since, since oh, lockdown. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Which is very bizarre. So the, the, nothing that I thought would happen happened and everything amazing that could have happened, but seemed unlikely has actually come to pass. Yeah. Interesting. That, that uh, kind of reminds me because from some of the anecdotes that I've heard, a lot of people have actually uh, found this new way of working to be, you know, maybe not a hundred percent productive, but sort of good enough. Uh, in some cases, um, like you said, almost seamless. So um, it, it, I, I have seen some companies, you know, promoting the idea that a lot of people want to go back to work, and that that might be the case as well. But I also think that uh, it's it's not a clear thing quite yet how this is going to shape up. That my personal understanding of it. Totally agree. So for sure, that the idea of people electing to work from home sometime, and like in the way in the world returns. I'm going to be much more flexible. Yeah. And the idea of hiring people remotely, I would have previously said no way. And now it's like, huh, well, I see how this works. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, my mind has just been completely opened up. But many of my colleagues have families and kids. It's hard to be at home all the time. And they're longing to have their kids return to school. And they, it's so much easier to manage you know, life-work balance. If you leave your home, go to work, and then you leave, you literally physically leave work and get to go back home or go to quote unquote your life. Right. It's just, it's because, you know, this whole Zoom meeting thing just consumes our days. So what I'm seeing is people are working a lot longer. Yeah. There's more hours in the day that people are working. Yeah. And it's just, it's, we can't keep doing it. It's going to, it's going to wear us all down. Agreed. Agreed. So Ken, by way of introduction, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview of, you know, your background, your firm? It'd be great to kind of get a sense about that from you. Yeah, thanks. I, so I grew up in Palo Alto, California and um, had a sort of a, a sunny childhood there and uh, studied philosophy at Occidental College. People would ask me what I would do with a degree in philosophy, and I my answer was always, eh, I'll be a lawyer. And when it came time to, to do that, to go to law school, I just couldn't do it. And um, I had spent my summers throughout high school and, and uh, college working for my father, who is a civil engineer at a firm called Lowney Associates. I thought, hmm, I don't know if I don't want to be a lawyer, and I definitely want to be an engineer, but I could be an architect. That's a nice in-between thing. It seems kind of artsy and it's connected to the world. So I ended up going to architecture school and uh, have never turned back. So I worked for I worked in Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, you know, New York and, and San Francisco at a firm called Gensler. And uh, I got laid off. When did I get laid off? 2003, which was actually one of the greatest gifts that happened to me. Right. Because I, I'd sort of run out. I was a very good employee, but I was tired of being a good employee and I wanted to be a good entrepreneur. And uh, just because I've seen my father do it, and I knew that I was going to be an entrepreneur, a business owner, before I knew I was going to be an architect, because I saw my father running his business and saw the flexibility it gave him, saw the income he received and the pleasure he got in, in growing a business and running a business, and uh, thought, hmm, that's for me. So very early on, I knew I wanted to have my own business. I just didn't know what it was going to be. Right, right. So in 2003, is that when you started your firm? Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, I got a job right away. 
and uh, was shortly thereafter fired from it because I wasn't listening to my client, which is very embarrassing because I'd already sent out announcements and people, you know, and so uh, I just started cold calling people. And it turned out I, uh, I cold called my way into a $20 million adaptive reuse of a, of a 19th century uh, power station that had been a, a car, sale, car showroom and it yeah. was turned into a Whole Foods, Whole Foods Market by Lake Merritt in Oakland. And that sort of launched phase one of my company's history which was sort of urban infill grocery stores. And uh, that, you know, I did that for 10 years and it was great. Did it all around the Bay Area for Whole Foods and Safeway, fresh and easy. Safeway brought me across the country and into Canada to you know, design it. They're sort of more complicated infill vertical, you know, either the grocery stores on top or underneath and parking is on top or underneath. And there's some public spaces and adjacent shops and sort of like a little, it's, I guess it would be, a cross between traditional retail street in a in a city and a shopping center, yeah. but something something in a city, and uh, we had a whole lot of fun doing that. Did this become your specialty for your firm? It did. I don't know how. I think that San Francisco Business Times dubbed me the Grocery King. Okay, one of their profiles <laughs> of me years ago, and I kind of liked that. It was cool just to you know say, hey, this is what we do. But I was beholden. There's not that many companies that can that can do this. You know, Safeway was really the primary one because they developed their own projects and they were acquired um, I the name of the, of the firm that acquired them. But as they were acquired, we were also, the economy was slowing down. Right. Um, so that business sort of petered out. Uh, luckily uh, there's a, a prominent local developer named Patrick Kennedy who owns panoramic interests. Yep. He um, hired us to do a modular project, which was was interesting for many reasons. Number one, it was a design-build project with Panko Builders. Number two, it was in San Francisco. Um, three, it was a micro-unit project, which is, which is very basically smaller than a studio. Everything yeah. is in one room. And most importantly, it was a modular, prefabricated project. So it was built somewhere else and shipped to the site and stacked up. And uh, so it was the first one that... We everyone had done. Patrick had not done it before. Panko had not done it before. We certainly had not done it before, and it was in fact the the, the factory, which was called Zeta Communities, which is now defunct. It was their first project, so we were all doing it for the first time. And uh, as you can imagine, um, everyone lost money. <laughs> right. but, what what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Right? Yeah, but it, but it was fascinating. It was the, it was built in four days and. I mean, the building was stacked in four days, and and the just the quality of the building was just fantastic, and it sort of set us on a trajectory of being really interested in in other ways of of approaching architecture. Um, we're still on this path, still trying to figure it out, and you know we're really involved with with the, the latest and newest factory in the Bay Area called Factory OS. Yep. But we work with, you know, we've worked with factories. For some reason, they're all clustered in Boise, Idaho, the Atkos and the Nashua's and the Geardens of the world. And uh, with Patrick, we've actually also worked on uh, some projects with Chinese factories and brought, brought Chinese modules into uh, the U.S. and, and done, did a small project in, in Berkeley, four-story project. And so it's it's been absolutely fabulous and it's and connected us with, you know, companies that are trying to print buildings and companies that are, there's a lot of tech people who are coming into the construction real estate development world. And many of them have, there's so many issues with their approach that they're 
probably not going to succeed, yeah. such as Katera. Um, but others, which I, I can't name because I'm, I've signed a, a pretty prickly NDA, but others are really making headway into just rethinking from first principles what a building is and how do you create these things. And um, so in, in a, probably a year and a half, maybe in a year and a half, we'll have another chat and I can, I can spill the beans on, yeah. on this particular factory. But needless to say, we've been doing the same thing for a couple hundred years. And, you know, we were previously talking about it just we can't we can't keep doing what we're doing and and hope for different results. Right. You know, there's we've got homeless people everywhere and no one can afford to buy new homes, people with good jobs. So we, we have to find a better way. Yeah. So it's interesting um, that we've kind of went into this direction and I'm a you know big proponent of this you know personally but what 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 is what I think covid has taught us all is that whatever trends were kind of emerging or were at the very kind of you know budding time in their life cycle it seems that you know that the pandemic and the sort of global you know shutdown has really pushed some of those trends into the new reality, right? Uh, and it's sort of accelerated um, the development of, of these things going forward. I would love to hear your perspective in terms of, you know, you certainly dabbled in some of these things. Um, looks like you're exploring some, some you know, partnerships with some, with some new ventures there as well. Your, what's your sense in terms of how prevalent this is going to be? And is this really the future of, you know, construction and development going forward? So I totally agree that, the the pandemic and the economic shutdown, this you know economy and societal shutdown as a response to this, has only accelerated trends that were already existing previously. So, for example, you know, retail was already having trouble, commodity retail in particular, and now you know Amazon has just taken it over. So, I mean, retail isn't dead. It's just certainly it's shifting and growing, right? The food and beverage, the prominence of food and beverage is now even more prominent in the boutique luxury portions and, and uh, you know, highly segmented aspects of retail where they're going to still continue when the world goes back if they're still in business. But I think it's, you know, I was, because oddly enough, we're, we're still designing a lot of hotels, um, building and designing hotels, which seems crazy because we might be the only ones. I know that the industry is incredibly hard hit, but it's just, it's too soon to, to tell how this is going to affect design. Yeah. And so right now it's not affecting design. I think if we were quarantined for another two years, certainly we would rethink how we are designing multifamily projects and hotels and things like that. But right now it's really down to the level of, you know, what are the materials on the surfaces? Are they cleanable? Can they self-clean? You know, how to kind of um, mechanical systems are we putting in these buildings or how, you know, what's the vo the volume and the filters and can we clean the air and all that kind of stuff. It's not going back to first principles like how do we get people in and out of these buildings and these rooms in a, in a safe way? Because we're assuming that the world will go back and find a vaccine and uh, we're eventually going to go, not eventually, but sooner rather than later, go back to the pre-pandemic world. So I don't, right now, I don't see, you know, the fundamentals of the structure of an office building or the structure of a hotel or multifamily. We're still going to have double loaded corridors. 
and elevators to those floors as of, as, as of today. Yeah, but what about this this whole notion, and you've, you've talked about this a little bit, I mean, this whole modular kind of way of building, right? I mean, is this something mm-hmm. that, um, I mean, I don't think this is just going to be like a niche thing going forward. I mean, I think certainly some companies exist already today that do, you know, prefabricated concrete and, you know, things like that, right? Um, that, yeah. that, that, that can already, you know, deliver, if you will, you know, a full, a full structure um, very efficiently. And I'm just curious, sort of from, from your perspective, since you seem to be more in, into that world than most people, you know, how do you see that evolving over the next, you know, five years or so? Well, it's currently prefabricated. So the prefabrication is just, it's built offsite, sort of offsite construction. It right. could be volumetric modular, it could be panels, it could be components. So there's a whole world of that. I'm mostly focused on volumetric modular and panels. So for sure, it's it's cheaper and faster, better acoustics and safer job sites. But some some things have emerged over the years that no one really anticipated. And you couldn't anticipate it because calamity and catastrophe hadn't happened. And the first thing we learned about modular was uh, working with Holiday Development on a project right on the border of Emeryville and Oakland on San Pablo Avenue. It was reusing an, an existing um, showroom again, car showroom, yep. and we were going to build a uh, seven-story building next to it. And we were almost done. We are on the sixth or seventh floor, and uh, someone burnt the building down. Oh, my heavens. So FBI came in and whatnot, and then so... Um, this Rick Holiday, the developer, decided to build it again, so he did, second time. And once again, we're well along in the building, and uh, someone else burnt it down. So it burnt okay. down twice. <laughs> <laughs> and so the first time we had designed the project, we were it was designed as a modular project, but at the same time, we were doing a modular project in San Francisco and decided, you know, better head, not um, put all our eggs in one basket. So we built one project in San Francisco, uh, 130-unit project on 3rd Street, uh, modular, and then we d- converted this project in, on San Pablo in, the, in Emeryville, Oakland, to s- site-built. And so it was the first two times the project was burnt to the ground, it was a site-built project. Okay. And what we did is we realized that a modular project is, because it's faster and because it arrives with its fire resistance already in, it's just it's much better uh, hedge against arson than a site build project, which is basically like a big, you know, imagine like a campfire before you put the match on it, right? So it's perfect to burn. Right. The sprinklers are not in it, and it's open and airy, um, perfect to burn. But a modular project is, is from an anti-arson standpoint, is much better than site build construction. So that was an that was a, a new learning for modular. And with this COVID pandemic, if you've been to construction sites, it's hard to keep people. I mean, even with masks, people have to you know, move around each other and you're, you're in confined spaces and, and and it's just the nature of working on a site. But in a factory setting with an assembly line, people can be much more careful about how they're building and much more safe. So just by the, by the very def, by the very layout of the factory and the Aries, you know, factory OS, for example, is a former submarine fabrication plant. So it's enormous. This is the biggest building that I've ever been in. It's like two or three football fields long and yeah. wide. And it's, you know, 150, 120 feet high. It's just like a cavern. So it's, and so there's lots of air moving and in and out. And there's lots of space between the workers and, and the different stations as the boxes go along and get assembled. So it's 
just more safe in in these situations. So it's it's a uh, I would say that that way of building there's a lot of benefits to it. Just you know from from things we never comp- would have imagined, like arson and pandemic that um, we're, we're we're discovering. You know, and and there's still resistance. I mean, the the as you saw, I guess the Chronicle had something. Did this article come out uh, July second. You know, there's a article about a affordable housing project in San Francisco, and the it was the unions were saying that they had elected not to protest it and cause problems. Which is, you know, I guess that's great that we can thank the unions for not, you know, stopping an affordable housing project. Actually, it's a project for homeless people. So um, it's not all rosy. Um, but most people think that it is. It's a great. It's a great alternative. It's a great another tool. It doesn't always work because there's some limitations for sure, sure for sure. modular. Um, but it's it's something. You know, we should every project we should begin with modular in mind, make it modular possible. And as as you design and think and do a pro forma and work with what the project wants to be, you know, always test it. Should it be site built? Should it be modular? This is primarily in multifamily housing, which is like student housing, affordable housing, supportive housing, also hotels, all the all the kinds of buildings that are, you know, repetitious and cellular and you know have basically a double loaded corridor. It could be single loaded too, but it's much more efficient. Yeah. To have a, a double loaded corridor. Yeah. Yeah. So let me switch over to something that you said earlier. Um, so you stated that since the pandemic broke up and uh, broke out rather, and you know, you guys kind of were adapting your business, uh, you were actually able to hire people. But throughout the industry, a lot of companies have been shedding employees. And I know every business has its own sort of, you know, set of circumstances that drives those decisions. But you know, what was it about what you're doing that uh, enabled you to actually uh, scale up? Well, I think so. I mean, I'm always um, looking for new work and to just to stand still, you need, you know, 200% more work than you can do because projects go on hold, they get submitted, you know, people review them. So we've, we've had, we had a good backlog and, and the work that we had uh, was primarily, 80% 80% housing, 10% hospitality, and, you know, 10% interiors and adaptive reuse. Yeah. And I'm just, I was, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I was just so thankful and surprised that all of our, we didn't have a single client stop. Every single person went. So most of our work is supportive and affordable housing and housing. And so I, the, the, the funding is already in place. The money has to be spent. The project needs to get done. So we were we were we were lucky in the, in that front. And prior to COVID, I mean, we were struggling. It was impossible. The labor market was so tight. We just could not hire the kind of quality candidate architect that we that we wanted. And um, now it's much easier. Yeah. Um, you know, our I'm not at all happy that our our competition is is in dire straits. But there is a benefit to it, and I'm and we're, we're pleased that we can provide some of these people work and um, bring them into our, our our company, and and it's and it's seeming to work. Where so we interview people remotely, we we onboard them remotely, we integrate them to teams remotely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're interacting with the client and the builder remotely. We're always trying our best, and and constantly surprised is actually working. Yeah, that. You know, 
people are everyone is everyone's working it's you know we're everyone there's a the, the trust the sort of fundamental trust that you know a, a democracy and a, a capitalist economy has that yeah if you do this I'll I'll do this and you'll pay me it's it it's still it's the fundamental trust of our how we do things is it's it's still there and maybe stronger than ever that because uh, we all have to lean on each other a little bit more yeah and uh, it's 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 great to see. Yeah, no, it is. It is for sure. This is not your first rodeo, obviously. You've been through a couple of cycles at least. Lessons learned from some of those, you know, previous downturns that you are applying to your business today. It's I, the, like 2003 and 2008 were, it seemed like there was, there was financial, economic, fundamental issues with the economy. We Money had been misspent, investments had... We're, we're not sound and you know a house of cards crumbled you know, either the tech wreck or the or the you know the 2008 real estate bubble um but we just decided to not we just as a society decided to not show up to work one day and it wasn't like i mean yes the, the economy was super hot and yes there were articles saying that you know here comes the recession you know the cycle's too long we can't keep going but does you know we're still going. So I, I, I don't know what I can learn, but you know, if you had, if you took time to take care of your network and the people, you know, I, your clients, your people that work in the cities, your fellow consultants, then, cause it's, if I can't, you couldn't start a company now, right? If you, if you in a position of weakness, as you, as you said, right, th- this situation just accelerates trends that were already existing. So if, if you were trying to start a business now or as COVID was happening or just before it, you, likely you're going to go out of business because you don't have the resilience of a network of people that, can, that know you and know what you can do. So I, I'm, I'm not sure just the idea of tenacity and keep on keeping on and, and not stopping um, and just having faith in the future because at a certain point, we all are going to get back to work. We're right. all going to come out of our shells. We're all going to show back to the office and get back to, you know, the airlines. People will, people will feel comfortable and have confidence to get back on airplanes. And that'll bring back the hospitality business. And, and you know, maybe, you know, I've, I've heard anecdotal evidence that construction costs are going down because, you know, general contractors are getting more subcontractors to give them prices where previously they were lucky to get one. Um, so maybe, maybe, you know, the one benefit of this is, you know, construction costs will go down and, and cities will be a little bit more receptive to projects coming, getting built. Yep. Maybe yep. NIMBYism will, will, will be less, you know, aggressive, but who's to say, I, I, it's, it's so unlike anything else we've ever been. I mean, who's been in, no one's been in anything like this. So I, I feel like, um, we every every day is um, a surprise, and and um, but I for sure we're going to come out of it. We just don't know what it's going to look like right. on the other side of it. No, no, certainly. And what about it? Do you think is going to be positive, uh, both for the industry, but uh, and by the industry I mean architecture industry, but also for you know housing, you know commercial development in general. What do you think? An ex- you know this will come or this will result in i think it will result in talent being able architectural talent 
can be anywhere now. I mean, I know there there were some companies that were doing this before, but I think that everyone's mind is open, completely open now to you know re, to hiring people not in the same state, and and um, trusting that they'll do the work. And what that means for the industry is that we can hire people from all around the country, maybe all around the globe, to help us work. And 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 kind of that's already been happening with. Um, Offshoring, which is, you know, when, when I started my company, offshoring was, was I mean, it's, it's always kind of in the shadows of architecture. Sure. You know, and I went, sometimes I went, how can it possible this firm do that project for so little? It's like, hmm, they, they can't be paying U.S. citizens to do that work. And the problem with offshoring, of course, is that it, it takes work away from young architects and they can't learn the profession. But maybe the, the borders of design are, are eroding that, you know, Architects in America will be working in France and China and Vietnam and India, and and those architects will will be working here. And you know, it's there's a there's a there's an opening potentially that could happen for all of us. So maybe we'll we'll, we'll all become international architects. Yeah, or out of <laughs> Montana or Idaho or someplace like that, right? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And then and then certainly what what do you what do you think this means for, you know, your firm? I mean, obviously, you know, cycles like these are going to, you know, force you guys to evolve as well and as you've seen your firm grow from 2003 to now, right, 17 years or so, where do you think that arc of change takes you next? Well, we the people we've been hiring are mostly senior people and and those people already know they're already architects. They know they've got, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years of experience. And, and so we need those people and it, and now we're able to hire them, but we also need junior staff. And, and the problem with junior staff is they don't really know what it is. They've studied architecture, but, but what you study in grad school and what you do in an office are extremely different things. Sure. And, you know, it's, when you go to architecture school, it's almost like you're an artist. Like you, you do your own thing, and people, your your critics are very interested in what your what your inner what your what your intent was. Whereas when you actually become an architect, you're, you're serving a client, you're serving the public, and you're working in teams. And and it's a team component, and it's and you're you're responsible for you know the the spending of tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, sure. and. So the responsible responsibility level is much higher. So the, the people hardest hit by this are going to be maybe people with less than ten years of experience, maybe less than seven years of experience, because they're still learning how to how to do it. And so the people coming up now, and the people who are unemployed, who have been laid off, it's hard. If I didn't already know them, they weren't already in. It's really hard to get them in. I mean, we're trying to do it, but I, that's our that's our current hurdle. Is is um, the effects on young architects is going to, they're going to be more adversely affected by all this than their senior colleagues for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's hope they figure it out, Ken. Right. <laughs> yeah. I feel for them. I, I am. Uh, Cause they're the, they, you know, they have so much of what we do is, you know, it used to be when I, I started way before computers, I, you know, was, I was building models by hand and drawing on paper and so the, what we do as architects is architecture, which is, you know, conceiving, documenting space per the code, making it legal, making it stand up, making it beautiful. Um, but that's, but we've added this whole other element of 
computer knowledge that we have to know. And it's, 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 it makes us better and faster and more accurate and more coordinated. But it's a, it's a whole nother silo of knowledge. And the, the younger folks come out of school really with a good grip, a good starting position of all that, of all the latter, of all the, you know, the software and, and best ways to do that and, and imagine building. So it's a shame. We just need to bring that forward and, and marry it to um, the other parts of architecture. Right, right. Um, great. Well, Ken, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Stay safe. Well, Vlad, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for uh, having me and uh, look forward to uh, continue our conversation. 